From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The constitutional right to an abortion ended a year ago. How have the legal and medical landscapes changed in Colorado since Dobbs? Then, a writer who owns a bookstore. We meet Arvin Ramgula in Crested Butte. He's working on a novel in which an Indo-Caribbean man like himself is often asked, where are you from? A question Ramgula won't always answer. It depends. It depends on who I'm talking to. I, you have to do some reading of the person themselves. Who is asking me, why they're asking me? Are they asking me because they want to tell me something, which is something I've encountered from their own family, from their own experiences? Have they been to India? And they want to know if I'm someone who is also from India. I am not. Plus, a comedian who came to Colorado by way of Baghdad. Donate your car, truck, or motorcycle to CPR. The proceeds from your gift will support your favorite programs, and you'll get a tax receipt. Let your old car make great radio at CPR.org support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Tomorrow marks one year since the Dobbs ruling when the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. What has happened in Colorado since? CPR's Benta Berkland joins us. She's on our public affairs team. Hi, Benta. Hi, Ryan. What did Dobbs change in Colorado? Well, the biggest impact it had, at least in law, actually started well before the ruling. On the day the U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments in the case, and this was back in December of 2021, a group of women in the state legislature announced that they would introduce a bill to explicitly protect abortion in Colorado law. Explicitly protect, because overturning Roe wouldn't have made abortion automatically illegal in Colorado, right? Yes, that's right. Colorado didn't have a trigger ban like some other states. So even if lawmakers hadn't done anything, the procedure would have stayed legal in the state. But Democratic lawmakers said they wanted to make it clear that Colorado protects reproductive care choices. And the law also prevents local governments from passing restrictions of their own. Have any local governments tried that? The city of Pueblo considered a proposal that would have effectively banned abortions within the city limits, but it was ultimately not approved. And the whole issue came about because some residents were upset about the prospect of an abortion provider opening a new facility in the city, and they wanted local officials to block it. The city council was warned that it could be sued by the state if the restrictions passed, and they eventually voted to table the idea. Abortion remains legal in Colorado, and I'll note this state is one of a handful that doesn't have any gestational limits. What has that meant for people coming here from other places, other states? Well, according to some preliminary state health data obtained by Nine News, in 2022, medical professionals administered more abortions in Colorado than at any time since 1985. And a higher percentage of the people who who received them came from out of state compared to previous years. Mm. According to that Nine News report, two out of every seven abortions in the state last year were out-of-state patients. Two out of seven. And of course, the Dobbs ruling didn't happen until halfway through the year, Benda. Yeah, so this really gives you a sense of how many more people have come to Colorado for abortions as other states have started to ban it. The largest number of patients came from Texas, 
followed by Wyoming and Oklahoma. We talked about the law Colorado passed in 2022, anticipating the Dobbs decision, which, uh, let's remember, was leaked as well. Um, But Democrats did more in this session, too, right? Yes, that's right. So following the Dobbs decision, Governor Jared Polis issued an executive order aimed at giving legal protections to people who come to Colorado for abortions or to anyone who helps another person cross state lines to obtain the procedure. And then this spring, Democratic lawmakers codified that into state law. And that measure was, in fact, part of a package of new laws aimed at ensuring access to abortion. Yes. uh, Lawmakers also expanded private insurance coverage for the procedure and other reproductive health care. And Colorado has also set restrictions on how crisis pregnancy centers can advertise their services, including making claims that they can reverse a medication abortion. So these centers generally seek to convince pregnant women not to abort. Colorado became the first state to essentially outlaw abortion reversal treatment by classifying it as unprofessional conduct. That has not gone into effect, though, yet, right? Correct? No. Yeah. Yeah. No, it hasn't. The state agreed not to start enforcing that ban until the Colorado Medical and Nursing Boards can evaluate what's known as abortion pill reversal and see if it meets the conventional standard of care for patients. And they're supposed to announce their conclusion in the fall. One thing we haven't seen in Colorado yet, Benta, um, is protection for abortion in the state constitution. I mean, these statutes could be overturned if power shifted. Do you think we'll see a constitutional amendment on the ballot like next year? I do. Supporters of abortion rights say that's the plan to get something on the ballot in 2024. And they want to ask voters to put the right to abortion access into the state constitution. They also seek to undo Colorado's current ban on using state funds to pay for abortion services. Thanks so much. Thanks, Ryan. CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland on what the first year without Roe has meant in Colorado. When we come back, writing a novel all while owning a bookstore. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Southwestern cities are packed with people, but farms and ranches use most of the Colorado River. You turn the water out of the ditch, it floods the field, and that's the way we've done it since, you know, 1888. One rancher has a plan to pay farmers to use less water, so there's more to go around. Listen to the CPR News podcast, Parched, wherever you get podcasts. Supported in part by Betty Ford Alpine Gardens in Vail. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Now a writer who owns a bookstore, Arvin Ramgulam and his wife Danica own Towney Books in Crested Butte. It is the literary nucleus of that resort community. And even as Ramgulam slings books, he is writing one a novel that pushes back against white, masculine tropes in Western fiction. The bookstore is in a charming clabbered home on Elk Avenue and shares a shingle with a coffee shop. Arvin, thanks for having us in the shop. Thank you for being here. You keep a journal of memorable moments customers have had in your store. Can we take a look at that together? Absolutely. It goes back to 2017 when I got the idea to even... So doing this, 
you know, like if someone had a bad experience in the store and they went to the internet and they left a bad review. And so... This is the Yelp antidote. Yes, absolutely. Uh, a little boy, his family, the last group of the day, stopped as his family was leaving and wished me a nice day while waving. He didn't have to do that. It was cute and thoughtful for a little kid. Oh, I see. So this is actually written by the staff as they observe things. It's not that the customers are writing it. Yes, it's us noting things that they either said or did as we've interacted with people during the day. And we have a lot of that in the store. That's the magic of the bookstore, really. Okay, that was from March of 2017. Let's fast forward a bit. Let's see. Mom thanked me for having a wide variety of diverse representation in our children's section. Uh, I love books. Oh, man, I love books. This is so me. I love books. I love bookstores. That was something an exuberant customer must have proclaimed. Yes. I understand you've also had some, like, makeshift slogans over the years. Yeah, we have had some makeshift slogans. What's on our T-shirt is drink coffee, read books, fight evil. But also, you know, funny things like come for the bathroom, stay for the books. Please don't take the books in the bathroom as we learned from that Seinfeld episode, though. <laughs> yes, please don't do that. Uh, another one is, this is quite cold here, obviously in the wintertime. Come to the bookstore. It's warmer than your house. Do you feel a sense of responsibility curating the shelves of a bookstore? I mean, that one comment about having books for young people that are diverse and reflect reality. Absolutely. I think people assume that the West and places like this, like Crested Butte, are very homogeneous and very straight and white. And actually, they're fairly diverse. And there are groups of people here who have been here for a long time. And my job, I think, is not only to just sell books, but also have a conversation here about who lives here and how can I convey that to not only customers, but in my own work, I explore that because I live here and I am working through towards an answer for where are you from? And to me, I think about, well, where am I from? I'm from here. I lived here for 20 years now. This is my home. I have a business. I have young children. And so when I look at my kids and I, I look at myself, I, I think, well, certainly we belong here. And I'm not trying to justify our existence. I'm just trying to underline that there is diversity in the West, and I'm a part of it. Now, people listening to this interview don't know that you are not white. <laughs> that, and so I suppose we should fill them in on why you might face the question, where are you from? Yes, I was uh, born in Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean. Grew up in Miami, Florida, but now have lived here in Crested Butte for 20 years and been a part of this community in so many different ways. And that question strangely comes up, you know, from people checking out. And I understand there's a curiosity about that. But I think we're living in 2023 and people are starting to come to understand that that maybe is not exactly a very polite way to start a conversation with someone. Your latest project is a novel called A New West, and it includes nods to classic Western themes. I'm thinking of the protagonist relocating to the Southwest, partly because his father has damp lungs, very Doc Holliday. Uh, the characters are Indo-Caribbean. The fights in this book are over public lands. I want you to read this 
excerpt from the draft because a character is asked where they're from. He went through the myriad of possibilities he contained, a Trinidadian, an American, an East Coaster, a father, a Bostonian, an engineer, a widow, a son, an almost divorcee, a closet nerd, a Nirvana fan, an immigrant, a hiker, a biker, a reluctant environmentalist, a cyber stalker. Which answer would suffice for this woman who moments before stood at the podium and advocated for a billion dollar company opening a mine on the outskirts of town near the headwaters of the town's water supply? Nirvana fan, I love that. (laughs) It does make me think that we contain multitudes and... I do wonder then, when you are asked where you are from, is it something you dignify with an answer? And is it an answer you've come to? It depends. It depends on who I'm talking to. Uh, You have to do some reading of the person themselves. Who is asking me? Why are they asking me? Are they asking me because they want to tell me something, which is something I've encountered from their own family, from their own experiences? Have they been to India? And they want to know if I'm someone who is also from India. I am not. My heritage is, but I don't have a connection there that I can share with them. Or are they just being callous and not thoughtful? We are sitting on a couch in your lovely bookstore, which you own with your wife, and every square inch has a book or a bookmark or a puzzle or a greeting card, or a t-shirt. Is it maybe a mixed bag to be a writer who is surrounded by books? That is to say, I can imagine them being inspiration, but I can also imagine them being, I don't know, like reminders. You're not writing enough. Write more. You're not successful enough. This is how I would interpret this environment. I'm very curious how you do. It is unnerving sometimes to walk into the store if I haven't written for a couple of days and I think to myself, wow, I need to step on the gas and get going. There's also a a real, um, it inspires me, but there's also anxiety that comes from being in the bookstore. Um, There's wonderful people that I know personally and I see their books and I, I, I love that. And I can see myself on the other side of this book world. And as also, I mean, frankly, there's some books that I'm like, how did that even get published? <laughs> like, you know, we have books in the store that we dearly love, and there's some that we sell because they're selling in the world. And so we, me personally, I am constantly thinking about, like, how books end up on bookshelves. I can imagine doing this because it's self-comparison. You're thinking, how did that get published? But I'm struggling with such and such a project. Yeah, it, that also plays into... The inspiration of, if this person pulled it off, (laughs) I think I can do it too. You know, owning a bookstore strikes me as one of those jobs that it would be very easy to romanticize, like maybe owning a bed and breakfast, but that people are not as aware of the slog and the difficulty. You've shared some of the joy get real with me on what is vexing about owning an independent bookstore in an age of Amazon and Alibris and tablets. It's frustrating because I'm small. I'm very small. I can't carry every single thing. We cannot control anything outside of the walls of our store. We can have the books that we're the most passionate about, that we love, 
that we can sell and make a case for that you wouldn't encounter on Amazon or anywhere else because we've put in the time and the work to put it on our tables and shelves. You're a curator. Exactly. That's what we offer. We can't give you the deepest discount possible, but we can sell you a book that you might love for the rest of your life. Is that vexing? Is that wonderful? What's hard about this? It's hard to overcome the price point. I need to sell something to, so I can pay my bills and feed my family and, and do that. And I don't think it's as apparent that that is sort of what we're doing here. Like we're all, we're very passionate about what we do, but we also have lives and we need to like pay for things and save for college for our kids and pay for braces and, and do that stuff. And this is how we do it. This is how we've chosen to live our life. It's difficult in some ways, but all jobs are difficult. I so appreciate you saying this because there's this idea that like you always have to love what you do, which I think is really a toxic idea. But you know, I, there are times, of course, I love what I do, but I also realize I would rather be hating aspects of this than hating aspects of anything else. <laughs> and hate's a strong word, but does that resonate with you? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I'll take these problems. I'd like to go back to your novel, A New West, it's still in the works. It includes an Aldo Leopold quote. To those devoid of imagination, a blank spot on the map is a useless waste. To others, the most valuable part. Does that relate to your experience coming to Crested Butte from South Florida? Because this isn't an empty spot on the map, but we're not far from one of the most remote spots in the lower 48, Lake City. It's just around the bend from here. And compared to South Florida... This is a very different experience. Yes, it's a good way to, to remind myself of how someone in the East might think about the West. And that people, I speak for myself, didn't really know what was here. I was sort of dragged here a little bit against my will by friends who, you know, thought that I needed a change. And they came here, they brought me here, and, and, and it turned out to be a wonderful experience for me in my life. And, and to me, it was a blank spot on the map. And I didn't know what was here. And coming here and finding it and finding value and community and people and the place, and that there is something here substantial, just not in what I might have thought 20 years ago when I first got here. What do you see now that you didn't see then? The wilderness, the outdoors. Growing up, I had no background in the outdoors or recreation or anything like that. I grew up in Miami Beach and it was just the beach and the city. And that was it really for me. A lot of thongs. <laughs> the thong song was my send off from the city. <laughs> it, was the, the, it was the number one song, I think, on the radio when I left South Florida. <laughs> now we have to play it. Damn you. <laughs> no, I'm so sorry, Ryan. Arvin, lovely to meet you. Thanks so much for spending time with us in this store. Thank you so much for making the trip to Crested Butte and being here. And it's really wonderful to have you here. Big hug, Ryan. Author Arvin Ramgulam co-owns Townie Books and the attached Rumors Coffee and Tea House. We spoke in Crested Butte during the recent Mountain Words Literary Festival. I asked him to recommend five books about the American West that he loves. We'll post those at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Climate change is a global issue with undeniable local impact. 
Sign up for CPR News Climate Weekly for a digest of fact-based reporting about the environment in and affecting Colorado. Sign up at CPR.org slash Climate Weekly. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. As a photographer, Kevin Maloney often documents the history of the West. His latest project is more of a family history with ties to the 1800s in southern Colorado and a legacy that thrives today. Maloney joins us from Indiana, where he is a storytelling professor at Ball State University. Hi, Kevin. Glad to be here. This story starts with your great-great-grandfather, Dario Gallegos. Tell us what he did for a living and how you came to retrace his footsteps. So Dario Gallegos in 1857 opened a store that is for a long time Colorado's oldest continuously operating business. So it was in my family for 165 years. And last year became a community co-op in San Luis down uh, in the heart of the San Luis Valley. So it's a very old business and it is steeped into my family. I gather you are talking about the R&R Market. That's correct. It's now called the San Luis People's Market, and it's a co-op to answer the same question that my great-great-grandfather had, and that is how do we solve a food desert problem in a very remote little town? So when he opened the store, yeah, it was also the only thing around where people could buy goods and manufactured products from the East, as well as a lot of local food. So it was a hub of the community then, and it's a hub now. He knew a lot about the movement of goods, didn't he, because of some of the jobs he had prior to the market. That's correct. So uh, his father ran concessions along the Santa Fe Trail. He and a brother of his would pack off food and other materials to help supply the wagon trains that had started connecting the United States to what was then Mexico in the 1840s. And as a young kid, I think he must have been 13 years old, Dario joined a wagon train expedition down to Chihuahua on the Camino Real. So he was gone for, I think, 11 months, I have read, moving down all the way to Chihuahua through New Mexico, buying and trading goods with the crew there, and then shipping them back to Taos, where he lived with his family. Tell tell us. Yeah, go ahead. Now, that kind of led, I think, to his interest in the Santa Fe Trail. Um, And when he opened the store in 1857, it wasn't long after that, that he knew he needed to stock the store. So he mounted his first wagon train back to Missouri on the Santa Fe Trail to bring goods back to that store that's still there. Mm -hmm. It nearly closed, by the way. I just want to say that Becoming a co-op is the notion that the community came together and was able to make sure that it not only is the oldest but longest running business in Colorado, right? That's true. Um, Felix Romero, who's a cousin of mine, had run the store for about 50 years and he was tired. And I don't blame him. He pitched everybody he knew, including me, to take over the store to buy it out from him, which is a 
pretty tough sell. The economics are rough there. So I'm glad they've come up with a solution where both Felix and his wife could retire from that that tough task and that there's a future for that market in the town. To this idea of retracing footsteps, tell us about this journey. What did you want to achieve with it? Yeah, well, I seized an opportunity. I had a chance, well, I had a trip to make to Santa Fe to see an old friend, attend a party, and I looked at airfares from Indiana, which were a little bit ridiculous. So (laughs) I realized that I should probably drive. And when I started thinking about that drive, I realized from Missouri on, I'd be driving the Santa Fe Trail, which is just a a pit of candy for a history geek like me. And (laughs) that's when I started recalling the connections of my family to the trail itself. So I dove into that with the purpose of stopping as much as I could along the way and absorbing his experience. So in a sense, he became a ghost I was chasing on the trail itself, where I could experience a lot of what that history meant, not only for him, and the family and the store, but also with what that avenue of commerce meant to the history we see now. Um, if uh, as I drove, I would I would think about how commerce was a really important piece of that trail. When we think of the Oregon Trail or the California Trail, for example, we kind of imagine them as migratory paths, and they. They had a lot of that as well as commerce. The Santa Fe Trail moved people too to relocate around the country, but mostly it was about shipping goods and about commerce. And that was a big piece to what probably led to the invasion of Mexico in 1846. So it was a fascinating trip to drive along and sort of consider those things as well as what his experience must have been like at the various points along the trail. I love this notion of following or chasing ghosts when you speak of your relatives. But, you know, you you didn't just drive this, right? Didn't you cycle a good bit of it? Yeah, I did. Um, I'm a cyclist. And so I made a point of hopping on my bike. I'd pull over the car. I'd find a nice stretch of the trail and I would uh, hop on my bike and ride out and back for a few hours uh, in each state along the way. So I made made a few uh, a few rides in every state. Uh, as I as I drove the trail, and it was it was a really wonderful way to get out into the elements and uh, feel the heat and the humidity in the eastern end and the lack of humidity and the dry, brisk wind on the on the west and feel a little bit of threat from the storms. So that really puts you in touch with the ground when you're when you're hearing your wheels crunch across gravel. I wonder if it brought you closer to Dario Gallegos and maybe what he might have seen and experienced. It did. Um, You know, when you are out there alone, you hear the birds principally, you know, as you whip along the highway that runs kind of parallel to the to the trail itself or on parts of it. You you hear the hum of your car, you've got your podcast playing or your <laughs> or your music, and you're sheltered from the wind and and so forth. But you know, when you're on a bike and I ride without sound, I don't put earphones in because I really like to hear the wind and the birds. And as a native Westerner, it was really particularly exciting to sort of roll into the country where what you hear are red winged blackbirds and 
meadowlarks and other bird songs that really inhabit my memories of the West. And uh, so it's a really lovely way to connect. If I could have, if I had time and the energy and the legs, it would be a tremendous trip to ride the whole trail itself. You know, it's something to be able to focus on the bird song of the Santa Fe Trail and not the constant potential threats and obstacles along the way that <laughs> Dario Gallegos, your great-great-grandfather, would have faced. Yes. Well, you know, <laughs> that was in my mind, too. So he ran that first trip east in 1858, came back after some months with a, a whole new stock for his store and had great success. So he mounted another trip almost immediately in 1859. And they went out and on the return, somewhere near La Junta, uh, they were attacked by a tribe. Uh, I don't know which one. I've been poking around trying to see if I could find any records of or any testimonials of this, but uh, but no no information on which tribe yet. But they were attacked and chased off of their wagon train. They fled to an arroyo nearby, where they hid with their horses. And you know the the tribal people burned the wagons and all of the goods. And that was a monumental disaster, I'm sure after having invested a lot of money in buying goods, going all the way across the country at the time and being on your way back and have your entire stock for your store burned. So I'm sure that probably required him to round up a bunch of money, face the disaster down and mount another trip almost immediately on the heels of that to go replace what had been lost. A reminder too, but that this, this is part of the story of westward expansion and colonization too. It is. And, you know, um, the U.S. invaded Mexico in 1846 and ended up taking over half of that country. So we, we annexed half of what was Mexico. And with any invasion throughout history, there's always an economic event, an economic element. And that's probably the principal reason behind any invasion, including the one of Ukraine going on right now. But, uh, so looking at that commerce and you I'm sitting on the sides of the of the trail or driving down it watching semi trucks blast down the highway moving goods hmm. it really became clear for me how much that commerce and the millions of dollars that was that were being earned and exchanged over that trail likely was the foundational reason for making that invasion of Mexico, despite whatever reasons were offered at the time about Texas or or manifest destiny and other things. So, you know, just having that trail and that commerce there really affected the history of the West. And as you sit out there, you can imagine how much different the United States would be and the history of the Western world would be if half of Mexico were still in that area between Texas and Oregon. Mm -hmm. So, so it had, it had a massive impact and, and that was a, that was a, a wonderful thing to feel. You can conceptually think about that stuff from afar. You can read about it, yeah. but to sit out there among the yuccas in, you know, Northeastern New Mexico or in Western Kansas and, uh, and and feel it was a was a wonderful thing. So there, there yeah, was not only the ghosts of my family involved there, but the ghosts of uh, you know entire military operations. Photographer Kevin Maloney, storytelling professor at Ball State University, 
And you can see some of the photos from his trip along the Santa Fe Trail on our podcast page later today at cpr.org slash Colorado Matters. We're about to enjoy the fruits of summer, Rocky Ford melons, Palisade peaches, and Olathe sweet corn. Yes, corn is a fruit. Anyhow, farmers who grow that produce face a worker shortage. And as our D.C. correspondent Caitlin Kim reports, Congress has been unable to help. David Harold is a second-generation farmer. He operates the Tuxedo Corn Company in Olathe with his dad. And if there's one big issue that he worries about, it's labor. As the farmer, I say I cannot find domestic workers who want to work seasonally at any price. The sweet corn that Olita is famous for has tender kernels on those cobs. It requires some delicate handling. In other words, those cobs are hand-picked. Without people to do that, Harold fears he may have to get out of the corn business. I don't see how we will be able to continue to operate how we have traditionally operated. Um, and maybe that's not a bad thing, but... What scares me is not operating, um, not being able to continue. Difficulty finding labor was a refrain I heard from farmers across the state. But to fix that problem, Congress would need to take on an issue it's long struggled to deal with, immigration. Like many other farmers, Harold relies on the H-2A visa program to bring in temporary agricultural workers. Some have been coming to work for Tuxedo Corn since he was a child. For them, it's relatively great pay, and for us, it's relatively a good deal because we are uh, um, getting access to a labor pool that, if we had to use domestic labor, might cost five times as much. But Harold says the program is hard to use. The applications are cumbersome, they have to provide housing, and sometimes the visas are late. And for the workers, the H-2A program has a big downside. It doesn't have a pathway to citizenship. Juan Francisco Chavez-Santana from Chihuahua is one of those temporary ag workers. In a call, he explains he's worked in Peonia for five seasons, spending eight months at a time away from his wife and three daughters. But they're also why he does this. He says his motivation is to give them better lives. And unlike the temporary visa, a pathway to legal status means his family would be able to join him. Still, changes to the H-2A visa program wouldn't address the elephant in the room. It's estimated that almost half of the ag workforce in America is undocumented. Immigration reformers want those people to have a chance for legal status, too. If you feed America, you deserve the right to stay in America. Antonio Delora Bruce is with United Farm Workers. We believe that the undocumented farm workers who have been the backbone of the American agricultural industry for many decades deserve the chance uh, to obtain legal status. Maricela Juarez is undocumented and has worked in Georgia fields for 15 years. She spoke at a press conference in December trying to get a compromise bill passed that would reform the H-2A program and provide a pathway to legal status for all workers. Si usted va a comer algo hoy, es gracias a los campesinos. If you've eaten anything today, she says, it's thanks to farm workers. That's why they deserve to have legal status. Immigration, however, is a political hot potato in Congress. That has some producers hoping an ag labor fix could instead sneak into the upcoming farm bill, which has to pass. Senator Michael Bennett, who serves on the Agriculture Committee, has looked into whether it fits the purview of the farm bill. If there is a way to address this in the farm bill, to discuss it in the farm bill, to have a debate about this, I certainly would love it for us to do it because even if ultimately it can't be addressed there, 
we have to keep this issue in front of the American people so we can solve it. Republican Representative Dan Newhouse of Washington has been a leader on the issue of ag labor and has been willing to break with his party to support compromises. But he doesn't think the Farm Bill is the right vehicle to get something done. Farm Bill is already difficult to get passed, as you know. Uh, this might even make it more complicated. As a farmer himself, Newhouse knows the importance of solving the ag labor issue. But he says in the end, it might only get shaken loose one way, through public pressure. If you can't find the labor, it doesn't matter what it costs, you, the work is not going to get done. People have to make sure that members of Congress understand how serious this is. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. And I'm Ryan Warner. When we come back, a treasure hunt on the moon. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Aerospace workers live all up and down the front range, the highest concentration in the country, maybe the world, according to the Colorado Space Business Roundtable. These folks work for about 500 companies in the state, and CPR's Dan Boyce says a growing share of those firms are small, scrappy startups. Not too many Coloradans have spent an afternoon lounging at Crater Beach. That's because it's the nickname for a giant open box filled with about 30 tons of sand and a handful of artificial boulders meant to simulate the moon, and probably because it's inside a warehouse in Arvada. On this day, a 20-something is using a modified Xbox controller to operate a small test rover on Crater Beach, checking out its autopilot software. It's about the size of a big shoebox and crawls around at a slow pace. His company, Lunar Outpost, has about 70 employees, and they have a lot of late-stage tests to run before they send one of their rovers to the south pole of the moon later this year. Working for a larger corporation, which uh, they're absolutely necessary, and they play a critical role, especially in our national space strategy. That's Lunar Outpost CEO Justin Cyrus, no longer a 20-something. He just turned 30. But I wanted to be in an area of space where we can innovate more and move a little bit quicker. Colorado has a long history with the space industry due to its military connections. Some of the country's first intercontinental ballistic missiles were located here. The Air Force Academy was an early leader in aerospace education. Peterson Air Force Base has long housed NORAD, the North American Aerospace Defense Command. Even GPS, the global positioning system, was set to run out of Schriever Air Force Base. And those bases are now called Space Force bases, and the largest share of Space Force personnel are based in Colorado. Over the last couple of years or several years, the reliance on the space domain, especially how the military conducts some of their business, has evolved and is uh, very important and, and progressive. Don Conley is the senior executive director of the Catalyst Campus for Technology and Innovation on the east side of downtown Colorado Springs. And she's showing me around this sleek, modern tech startup incubator located in a renovated train station. We have always primarily been interested in the space economy. She says 80 percent of the small companies here are space related. Colorado Springs' ties to the military mean these space companies largely go after defense contracts. 
Andy Merritt is the chief strategy officer for the O'Neill Group, a venture capital and real estate firm that owns Catalyst Campus and invests in defense-focused tech companies. And he says it is a shift that the military is looking beyond just the biggest aerospace companies like Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, and Northrop Grumman. I think two-thirds of all patents are done through small businesses. So even the Department of Defense has recognized that that's where the real innovation and solutions are coming from. To me, it's a renaissance in space right now. Bob Cohn is the chair of the Colorado Space Business Roundtable. He's been in the field for more than three decades. I have never witnessed the confluence of really positive effects for an industry, in in this case aerospace, like I have in the last five to ten years. And he says an enormous part of that is private companies like SpaceX innovating around reusable rockets and bringing down the cost to launch stuff into space, often by as much as 90 percent. That has dramatically accelerated the number of ideas that can actually get into space because the hurdle is lower. Which brings us back to Lunar Outpost. CEO Justin Cyrus says when they were looking for a niche. We said, look, at the end of the day, we didn't want to compete against Elon Musk. We didn't want to compete against Jeff Bezos. Okay, so they stayed away from rockets and decided to make things to move around beyond Earth's orbit instead, like moon rovers. The vehicle slated to crawl off a lander on the lunar south pole in November is aiming to be the first purely commercial project of its kind in human history. No military involvement, no NASA involvement. Other private companies are paying to attach their technologies to the rover. And this one's about the size of, I don't know, a chest cooler or like a golden retriever. You get the idea. And it has cost tens of millions of dollars. Sounds like a lot. But compare that to previous NASA rovers, which have cost billions of dollars each. So that's what it's going to cost if you have to have 99.99999% chance of success. However, if you're willing to accept an 80% chance of success, you can send dozens of rovers, dozens. To that point, even if something goes wrong with this first rover, the Lunar Outpost team is planning three more chances in the next three years. Dan Boyce, CPR News. Well, Dan joins us now with a delightful fragment that didn't quite fit into that Lunar Outpost story. He's going to share it with us now. Hi, Dan. Hello, Ryan. Guess what? This little rover is going to carry humanity's first interplanetary treasure hunt. Whoa, okay. Say more. Yep. Here's Lunar Outpost Chief Strategy Officer Forrest Mayan with a clue. And this kind of idea came about of, you know, everyone wants to send Bitcoin to the moon. <laughs> uh, you get the joke, Ryan? It's kind of like the, the meme stock thing. So people saying, man, the price of GameStop, let's send that to the moon. Let's, let's Dogecoin, we're putting that to the moon. To the moon. I get it indeed. Right. Well, so this Lunar Outpost team, they said, well, OK, well, we're going to literally send Bitcoin to the moon. Bitcoin, the digital currency, of course. And so how would this work? So, well, people, they often store the digital record of their cryptocurrency in what's called a wallet. And it's basically, say, an encrypted computer folder where the data can only be unlocked if you have a digital key. Yeah, like maybe a string of unrelated words. Totally. It's, you know, like a dozen or so. Say it's like peanut, expectation, unicorn or, you know, whatever. And it, it all has to be in a specific order. So poetic. And so will the key be on the rover? 
So the, the key will be on the back of the rover, right where the license plate would be, and it will be covered with a metal plate that is screwed on. No one will know the key, not even anyone at Lunar Outpost. Here's me talking with Mayan about it. The only way you can do it is if you are physically there and you have basically a screwdriver to just unscrew the plate to reveal what that wallet code is. You can't take a picture of it. You can't. You have to be there to screw it physically there. Exactly. And that's what makes it such an exciting project is hopefully someday that treasure chest is big enough that maybe even it's financially makes sense to charter a mission, you know, rent a SpaceX rocket and a lander and send a rover or maybe in sometime in the future, you know, go there yourself to get it. If you want the Bitcoin, either you or a robot, I guess, has to find the rover on the surface of the moon and unscrew the plate. Uh, now, Dan, your story talks about the costs coming down for missions like this, but they're still extremely expensive in absolute terms. So how much is the prize for whoever gets there? Right. A very important question. So the crypto company sponsoring the competition, a company called Lunar Crush has put 62 Bitcoin in the wallet so far. So it checking the price as we're recording this, that's right now about $1.6 million. That's, you know, that's not too shabby, but just like you say, it's not exactly worth a moon mission on its own yet. However, the company is allowing people to donate into that wallet if they want to spur along the treasure hunt and, you know, and maybe just spur some innovation along the way. And I guess, I mean, who knows with crypto, Bitcoin may go on another tear, double in value, or it might crash to worthlessness. Sure, right. And and Lunar Outpost, they know this. They're just seeing what happens with all this. Here's CEO Justin Cyrus. It's fun, but it's also something that's not, it's not mission critical, if you will. It's like, we don't have to do this as part of our commercial missions. But the reason we're doing it, we want to show people what can happen out in space. And Cyrus guesses between people donating into the wallet to incentivize the treasure hunt and then more missions heading to the moon. And like you say, innovation that it'll somehow be worth someone's time someday to unscrew that plate and find that key. And Cyrus thinks maybe in about five to seven years. Thanks, Dan. You're welcome, Ryan. CPR Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce on the upcoming Lunar Outpost mission. Finally today, the Boulder Comedy Festival is underway. Its mission is to highlight women and diversity in stand-up. We'll leave you with some laughs from a featured comic. Ali Karim is originally from Baghdad, where he worked as an interpreter for the U.S. military. He's in Denver now and performs all over Colorado. Here's his recent set at the Comedy Fort in Fort Collins. I um, I wanted to buy a motorcycle, and a friend of mine told me, he said, motorcycles kill their owner. Uh, so I bought one, and I put it in his name. <laughs> I'm, um, I'm originally from Iraq. Uh, I've only been in the States for nine years. Uh, I'm from Baghdad. B-Town? <laughs> Nobody here from Baghdad? <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> Thank you for your service, sir. Uh, you killed my people? I've been to Baghdad. Uh, I moved from Iraq to Nebraska. Uh, 
Nebraska looks like Iraq with grass. <laughs> I worked in retail for three months. I was like, ISIS makes sense now. <laughs> A lot of people ask me, they're like, what was Baghdad like? Um, our cats didn't meow. <laughs> they meow. <laughs> When you pet him, they go <laughs> uh, But I, um, I just got my citizenship. Thank you, thank you. You have to study and memorize 100 questions about US history, and they ask you 10 random questions to pass. Uh, you guys should know some of these questions. <laughs> what, uh, what ocean borders the East Coast? Atlantic, yes, thank you. Uh, well, they didn't ask me questions like that. <laughs> They're like, uh, have you ever been or participated in any terrorist activities? Uh, I was like, que? It's <laughs> like, I love America. I'm like, all right, sir, you're officially a US citizen. Uh, walked in, uh, the ceremony was a little bit awkward. Um, they were playing Born in the USA. <laughs> to a bunch of people that just got their citizenship. <laughs> Main guy looked at me, I got all nervous. I was like, I, I did buy a motorcycle and I crashed it. I broke my femur, so I have metal in my leg. Um, I was going through the airport the other day I walked through the metal detector and I alarmed. And TSA is like, sir, you seem to have a metal object in your leg. I was like, it's a, it's a metal bar. But all they heard was Allah Akbar. It's <laughs> um, like, I love America. <laughs> like, you're good to go. Um, Denver comedian Ali Kareem. He's taking part in this year's Boulder Comedy Festival, which runs through Sunday. That is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to a team that also makes me laugh. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is CPR News and KRCC.